Good evening, everyone. I am feeling good this evening. Might have been from all that running that I got an archery tag. Though if you guys want to know about winning strategy, you have to talk to Matthew. He's the one. There's one round where my partner and I made a, a truce with Matthew and his sister for like the first two minutes of the round. And so I'm running around, I'm shooting at other people, not paying attention. And at like two minutes and five seconds, he goes, quack! And Matthew shot me because we said two minutes and it was after the two minutes. So I was out and he and his sister won that round. So he's got the strategy down. He's the man to talk to. So I am feeling good. I am excited to get to talk about enjoying the spirit every day. I certainly learned a lot as I was preparing for this message. The very first session, one of the discussion questions was, with which member of the Trinity do you have the closest sense of a lived, experienced relationship? Basically, do you feel like you're closest to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? And I'm sure that all of you gave all sorts of answers. Um, I did get the, the sense as I chatted with some of your small group leaders that the son was perhaps the most common to feel close to, and then the father with the spirit being the, the rarest, with a couple of exceptions of those of you who are saying, no, I've learned a lot about the spirit recently. And, and that feels fairly typical, and that was certainly the case for me as well. Um, I think historically I felt closest to the son. More recently, say the past year or so, I've learned a lot more about the Father and have grown in my relationship with Him. And yet the Spirit, I still have a lot of room to grow. I just don't have that same vibrancy of lived relationship with Him as I do with Father and Son. And I want to, to grow in that area. I know that there's, there's something that I'm missing out on that I want to get. And so it's been really good for me to prepare this, and I trust that especially for those of you who feel like you don't have as close of a relationship with the Spirit as you would like, that it will be very warm and helpful to you. So tonight, enjoying the Spirit every day, the big idea is this. We enjoy the Spirit by receiving His comfort. The big idea for tonight is that we enjoy the Spirit by receiving his comfort. Receiving his comfort. Tonight we have three misconceptions about the Spirit and then three practical ways to enjoy the Spirit. I'm going to jump right in. Misconception number one. Misconception number one is the Spirit is a power, not a person. The Spirit is a power, not a person. Now, probably none of you would affirm this misconception. None of you would be like, oh, yeah, it is true that the Spirit isn't actually a person. He's not actually God. He's just some vague spiritual power. That's all the Spirit is. None of you would probably say that. But some of you might accidentally fall into relating to the Spirit that way, relating to the Spirit as though he were just a power, just a force, and not a person, and not fully God. And so I want to basically just give you one really helpful passage to keep in your mind so that you'll be reminded to relate to the Spirit as a person and not just as a power. And the passage is Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property, and they come and give the money to the church. But in fact, they only give some of the purchase price to the church, and the rest of it they keep in their own little piggy bank. 
but they act as though they're giving all the money to the church so they'll seem more spiritual. And Peter knows about it because the Holy Spirit told Peter about it. And so Peter speaks to Ananias, the husband, and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Peter says you lied to the Holy Spirit. You can only lie to a person. You can't lie to a force. If you cheat on a math test, heaven forbid, and you get found out, your teacher isn't going to say, you have lied to the power of math. I was going to say, no, you, you cheated. Maybe you lied to your teacher. But there's no lying to the power of math because it's just a force. It's an abstract idea. It's not a person. But here Ananias does lie to the Holy Spirit. He lies to a person, a divine person, the third person of the Trinity. And in fact, just a verse later, Paul, uh, Peter says to Ananias, You have not lied to man, but to God. Explicitly saying, it's not just that the Holy Spirit's like some middle-of-the-road angel sort of dude, but rather, you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. The Holy Spirit's not a power, he is a person. He is a divine person and fully God. The first misconception. Misconception number two. Comfort is a warm blanket. Comfort is a warm blanket. It's the second misconception. Stay with me here and I'll explain it. The key passage here is John chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse the night before Jesus was betrayed. He is talking to his disciples. John chapter 14, verses 16 to 17, he talks about the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, Jesus says to his disciples, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says to the disciples that he's going to ask the Father to send them another helper. And that, that word that the ESV translates helper is really hard to translate from the Greek. The Greek word is parakletos. Not that you necessarily need to know that, but it's kind of cool, parakletos. And it, it's hard to translate. It's sort of like either helper or advocate or counselor or comforter. Some sort of, of role where somebody comes alongside you and aids you in some sort of way. And so depending on your translation, you'll get different words used here. My ESV uses helper. King James Version uses comforter. Others might say advocate or, or helper. It'll just depend on which particular Bible you're using, which emphasis of the word the translators are trying to bring out. I, tonight, will probably say comforter most often when referring to the Holy Spirit's role. Helper, comforter, all of those are, are accurate, just different shades of what the Spirit does. So here, Jesus promises another helper or another comforter to his disciples. I remember there was one day a couple months ago where Rachel had just had a, a bad day, and it was mid-afternoon, and she was just like on, on the bed in the bedroom, and just it was not going well. And I had somewhere that I had to go, and I'd been trying to be there to, to comfort her and say, I'm sorry, and it's going to be all right. 
and I had been comforting her, but then I had to take off and go to this meeting. And she's like, what, what, who's going to comfort you while you're gone? And so she's lying on the bed, and so I take the sheet, and then I, I take the comforter, and I put it over her. I'm like, here, here is another comforter. <laughs> and I thought it was really clever, and I laughed. Rachel didn't laugh. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes when we think about comfort, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that's the sort of image we think. It's like a bed comforter where you just put it around you, it's sort of warm and cozy. And, that, and that's okay, but I think that the comfort that the Holy Spirit provides is, is a little bit richer, a little bit deeper, and a little bit more forceful than just the picture of a, a warm blanket. I think that's an okay starting point, but we've really got to go farther than that. It's not just that the Holy Spirit you know, pats you on the head and says, there, there, it's going to be okay. He does much more than that. I, I like the word reassurance. To describe the comfort of the Holy Spirit, reassurance is a good word here. Uh, John 15, verse 18, Jesus warns his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So his disciples expect to be hated by the world. And then a couple verses later, verse 26 of John 15, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. In other words, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will tell you about me. He will testify to you about me. He'll remind you of who I am. He will reassure you of my love. This is a promise that when the disciples are surrounded by enemies and Jesus is no longer standing there beside them, that there will be someone, namely the Holy Spirit, to reassure them of Jesus' love. The Spirit's comfort includes reassurance. And the, the effect is that they are going to be strengthened. That's the other word I like when thinking about comfort. We've got reassurance, and then you've got strength, strengthening. Verse 27, the very next verse, Jesus says to the disciples, You also will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit will bear witness to the disciples, and that will strengthen the disciples so they can go out to the whole world and tell the world about Jesus. The effect of the Holy Spirit's comfort in their lives is going to be strength that they're able to go out and represent Jesus. And in fact, it would have been easier for English-speaking Christians to understand this back in 1611 when the King James Version of the Bible was first published. They used the word comforter to describe the Holy Spirit, to translate parakletos. They used the word comforter, and back then, comforter didn't just mean warm blanket. It meant to strengthen or to give aid or to support. You can kind of hear it in the second half of the word comfort, comfort. A fort is like a strong hold, a safe place, or you, you fortify something, you reinforce it. Or if any of you know Spanish, the word in Spanish for strong is forte. It comes from the same Latin root. Comfort means to give strength, to fortify, to make strong. And we don't really use the word comfort in that sense anymore, so it's a little bit harder for us to see. But that's the sort of comfort that the Spirit gives. It's a strengthening, a fortification, a reinforcement of your inner self. 
These disciples are going to fall all to pieces when Jesus leaves. In the first chapters of Acts, you see them all hiding in a single room between the day when Jesus goes back up to heaven before the Holy Spirit comes. They're all together. They're wondering what's going to happen to us. The religious leaders who killed Jesus want to kill us too. They're timid. And then the Holy Spirit comes in power, descends on them in tongues of fire, and they go out and start publicly proclaiming Jesus in front of a hostile Jewish audience. And then the name and the word of Jesus goes throughout the entire Mediterranean. That's the sort of strength that the Holy Spirit gives when he comforts a believer. So comfort is not just a warm blanket. There will be points at which the Spirit's comfort does feel like a warm blanket. That's okay. But more than that, it is a reassurance of who Jesus is and what he has done. And it is a strengthening so that you can carry on when life is hard, and especially when you are opposed by those of the world who hate you because they hate Jesus. Misconception number three. Misconception number three, the spirit comforts with vague spirituality. The spirit comforts with vague spirituality. It's misconception number three. I include this especially because something this is something that I've been unclear with, some uh, misconception that I've fallen prey to in the, the past, even before just prepping this message. I've thought, yeah, I know the Holy Spirit comforts me, but if you ask, how does the Holy Spirit comfort you, I would have said, he just does spiritual stuff. <laughs> I, I don't know. And, and the danger is that we start thinking of the Holy Spirit as like Casper the Friendly Ghost, the cartoon character who just flies up behind you. He's like, hi, I'm Casper. I'm your friend. And you're like, oh, it's so nice to have a ghosty friend. And <laughs> nothing against Casper, but that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Spirit doesn't just comfort us with vague spiritualness. So how does the Spirit comfort us if it's not like that? Well, I'll tell you, but we're going to have to get there, so follow along. Starting point for figuring out how the Holy Spirit comforts us is John 14, 16. Still part of this upper room discourse from Jesus. Verse 16, we've read it already. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another comforter. That word another means that the Holy Spirit is number two. Jesus is number one. The Holy Spirit is another comforter, and Jesus was the first. Jesus has been doing something. He's been helping, comforting, advocating for his disciples. And he's about to leave and go back up to heaven after his death and resurrection. And he says, hey, I'm not going to be around anymore to do this for you. So I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send you another comforter. And he'll pick up where I left off, like a relay race. You make one circuit, and then you hand the baton off, and your teammate makes the second circuit. Similarly, Jesus has been with his disciples, comforting them, reassuring them, strengthening them. But he's going to go up to heaven. And so he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'm going to pass the baton off to another comforter. And he's going to keep on doing what I've been doing for you. So, what Jesus has been doing already helps us understand what the Spirit is going to come to do. 
Jesus says, I've been doing something. I'm going to leave. The Holy Spirit's going to take over. So if we want to figure out what the Spirit's going to do, we can say, okay, well, what has Jesus already been doing? What has lap one looked like? What is Jesus doing that the Holy Spirit's going to take over? Okay, well, what, what is Jesus doing here just in these couple of chapters? I'd summarize it this way. Jesus here teaches and reminds the disciples of his grace and the Father's love. That's important enough. It's worth writing down. I'll say it another time or two. Jesus teaches and reminds the disciples of his grace and the Father's love. Throughout his ministry, and then especially in this last farewell discourse, Jesus teaches and reminds the disciples of his grace and the Father's love. A couple examples of this. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He teaches them of his love that he's going to prepare a place for them. Another example, John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus teaches his disciples that they're connected to him and connected to the Father. Another example, chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's a great song we say. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is teaching them about the Father's love and his own love for them, so that they might be full of his own joy. Another example, chapter 16, verse 20. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He's teaching them what to expect, giving them an idea of the future so they can hang on during the dark times when it seems like the world has won during those three days after his crucifixion and before the resurrection. Last example, 16, verse 33 Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus teaches and reminds his disciples of his grace and the Father's love, so that they may have his peace and joy. Jesus teaches and reminds his disciples of his own grace and of the Father's love so that his disciples may be full of his peace and his joy. Now, Jesus has done a wonderful job of reassuring and strengthening his disciples in these chapters, in this last farewell speech before he's betrayed and arrested and goes to the cross. Question, can the disciples coast 
on this one speech. Are these words, as glorious as they are, enough to fill them with Jesus' peace and joy for the rest of their Christian lives? No, I don't think this speech is enough in and of itself for two reasons. Number one, they still have more to learn. Jesus says this explicitly in chapter 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus has more to teach, but they're so sad about his going away that they just can't hear it. You ever been like that? So, so tired or so sad that you just can't learn? You're trying to look at a textbook or listen to a lecture and you're just not absorbing it because you've got other stuff going on? The disciples are like that. There's so much that Jesus still needs to tell them, but they can't bear it now because they're so burdened. And so this speech alone isn't going to give them permanent peace and permanent joy because there's more that they have to learn. And then also it's not enough because they're forgetful people. They're going to forget some of the things that Jesus says. They need somebody to keep on doing what Jesus is doing and teaching and reminding them of these truths. Jesus has been their helper, their comforter, who teaches them and reminds them. They need another helper, another comforter to teach them and remind them. So that's exactly what Jesus promises. John 14, 25. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come and he will teach them what they still need to know but cannot now bear. And he will remind them of all that Jesus has said that they've forgotten. The Spirit picks up where Jesus leaves off. Jesus promises that he will send the Spirit to teach and remind the disciples of his grace and the Father's love. So that even after Jesus returns to heaven, the disciples may still be filled with Jesus' own joy and peace. This is how the Holy Spirit comforts you. The Holy Spirit reassures you and strengthens you this way. It's not with cliches and platitudes. It's not with a pat on the head. Rather, it's with truth about the Son's grace and the Father's love. The Holy Spirit comforts you by teaching you and reminding you about the Son's grace and the Father's love so that you might be filled with the Son's own peace and joy. John Owen goes so far as to say that the Holy Spirit, anytime he comforts us, it is always by reminding us of the Son's grace and the Father's joy. John Owen says there are two tools in the Holy Spirit's toolbox, and those are the only two. One of them is the grace of the Son, the other is the love of the Father. And when he goes to work on you to comfort you, those are the only two tools he has and the only two tools he needs. To teach and remind you of the grace of the Son and the love of the Father. That was the paraphrase. Here's exactly what Owen says. All the consolations, all the comforts of the Holy Spirit consists in his acquainting us with 
and communicating to us the love of the Father and the grace of the Son. That's how the Holy Spirit comforts you. And further, Owen says, any time that you enjoy the love of the Father or the grace of the Son, the Holy Spirit is active in that enjoyment. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in making that happen. Owen says, Indeed, we have our communion with the Father in His love and with the Son in His grace by the operation of the Holy Ghost. Whenever you enjoy the Father's love or enjoy the Son's grace, the Holy Spirit is at work there. He is comforting you by helping you to enjoy the Father and the Son. Have you enjoyed the Father's love and the Son's grace at all this camp yet? If you have, then that means that the Holy Spirit has already been active in your life, comforting you. The Holy Spirit loves you so that he saw fit to teach and remind you about the love of the Father and the grace of the Son so that you here today might be full of joy and peace. That's how the Holy Spirit comforts. It often happens directly through the Word, through hearing the Word preached, or through reading it on your own, or by being told about it by a friend. But the Holy Spirit is remarkably creative in how He comforts. For instance, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit comforts, a way that Rachel's been discovering recently, is through beauty. Beauty, especially in the natural world. Sometimes when you are feeling tired, discouraged, weary, hurt, it feels like a lot of work to go and try to find a place in the Bible to encourage you, even if you know that would be good for you. And sometimes, especially when you're deeply hurt, other people who mean well can, can like throw Bible verses at you in a way that hurts. If they're being too flippant, they're not being sensitive enough. And so the Holy Spirit being creative can also comfort through beauty, through the paintings of Monet. Monet was an Impressionist artist. He made lots of paintings of the water lilies floating on the pond in his garden. Rachel and I were in Dallas a month or two ago, and Rachel went to an art museum where they have some of the original paintings of Monet, and she just sat down in front of a painting and just stared at it for 10 minutes to enjoy that beauty or to enjoy the, the beauty of the ocean when you walk along the beach. Sometimes when you're sad or grieving, you just need to get out and see beauty, especially in nature, because the Spirit can use that to remind you of the Father's love. Maybe when you're feeling down, if you look and see a sunset, you'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, the Father is good. I'd forgotten that, but this is such a glorious sunset. It just has to be. The Spirit can comfort you by reminding you that there is goodness in the world, that darkness will not have the last word, but light will always come. It's a visible reminder. It's one, one creative example just to get you thinking. Another way that the Holy Spirit comforts is through music. God gives us music 
so that we might both be affected in our minds as we think about what we're singing and in our emotions as we're carried along by the tunes and the melodies. The best songs are – the best you know, Christian songs, songs for worshiping – are those that, that do both, that are both full of truth that our minds can grasp onto and are good tunes that we can easily sing along to. And the tunes that the band has been singing up here have just been fantastic. They have all been chosen well. They have all been full of truth that the Spirit can use to remind you of the love of God and the grace of the Son. And they have been full of music so that if you're feeling just sort of down or just sort of flatlined, the music can sort of start – you get into it. You start feeling like, oh, yeah, this is real. The Spirit can use music to comfort you, to remind you of things you've forgotten. One super concrete application point could be go make yourself a playlist of really good worship songs. Or if you don't feel up to that, then go onto Spotify and see if Clifton has a playlist. Clifton probably has a playlist. Just follow that, and then when you are down, go and just say, the Spirit, would you please use this music just to comfort me because I am feeling really down and I need some comfort. And allow the Spirit to use music to comfort you. Those are a couple ways that the Spirit is so creative and has so many ways that he can remind you of the love of the Father and the grace of the Son. All right, those are the three misconceptions, three ways, three practical ways that you can enjoy the Spirit. Number one, in every temptation, enjoy the Spirit's life. In every temptation, enjoy the Spirit's life. Key passage here is Romans 8, starting in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You can live by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who comes into your life when you are spiritually dead and causes you to become spiritually alive. And so whenever you're tempted, you can remember, I used to be dead, but I'm not dead anymore. I don't have to sin because that's how I would have acted when I was dead. But the Spirit has given me life, and now I have the choice to resist this temptation, to say no, and to live for God instead. Tim Chester says it this way. If you're in Christ, then the Spirit has given you life. Life to live for God. Life to change old habits. Life to proclaim Christ's name. You have new desires, new life, new power. Every time you're tempted to explode in rage, or go off in a sulk, or make it all about you, or exaggerate to impress others, in all these situations and many more, you can enjoy communion with the Holy Spirit. In every temptation, you can enjoy the life of the Spirit. Next time you're feeling tempted, remember, I am alive because of the Holy Spirit, and I can enjoy this life. I don't have to sin. And if you find yourself dead, 
then we should talk to the Spirit and ask for light. If you've never been made alive by the Spirit, if you're yet an unbeliever, you're not going to be able to do that. Sin's just going to come into your life, and it's just going to wallop you every time because you're dead outside of Christ. If you're still dead outside of Christ, then pray and ask for new life, and the Spirit will give it to you. Second practical way. In every groan, enjoy the Spirit's hope. In every groan, enjoy the Spirit's hope. Key passage here is Romans 8, starting in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When is a time that you have groaned or shouted, that works too, when is a time that you have groaned, a time that you've had a bad day, a time when you've had a series of bad days, uh, maybe a series of unfortunate events, or a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? I quote a couple different books. Those sorts of days just cause us to groan. Maybe sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh no, another day. We groan. Because we know things aren't how they're supposed to be. That groaning, that dissatisfaction with how the world is, is actually a good sign that we know there's something broken with the world. This isn't how the world used to be back when God created it, before sin entered the world. Sometimes unbelievers can do that. Unbelievers can groan too and be like, this is not how the world's supposed to be. But what we have that the unbelievers don't is what Paul describes here as the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, we have the Spirit within us as a promise that something better is coming. Unbelievers can groan and look backwards and be like, man, things were better when I was a kid. Old people say that sometimes. Unbelievers can look backwards when they groan and be like, oh, I wish it was the way it was earlier. But we Christians can groan because we know not only were things better in the past, but also we can look forwards and say we know things will be better in the future. Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, that, that down payment, that promise that things are going to be better when Christ returns. And so when we groan, we can enjoy the Spirit's hope. The Spirit wants us to be filled with hope when we groan. This is not how the world is supposed to be, and it is not how the world will be one day. So every time you groan because you're having a bad day, you can use that as an opportunity to enjoy the Spirit's hope and think forward to the new creation. That's what John the Apostle sees in Revelation 21, coming down out of heaven. He sees the new Jerusalem descending. He says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. It's, it's really important that you, that you get this. Paul says here that creation is groaning alongside us. Because creation knows that something better is coming for it as well. The end of the, the story of the universe is not 
the universe gets blown up and we all go into timeless eternity and float all around on clouds or something like that. That's not how the Bible describes eternity. That's not how the Bible describes heaven. The Bible consistently describes the permanent future state of the Christian as being a new universe. New heavens and new earth. That's what that phrase means. New heavens and new earth, just like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the whole universe. In the future, he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, a new universe. So that means when you picture what eternity is going to be like, you should picture an earth. You should picture a world like this, but subtract all the bad stuff and add a bunch of good stuff. Don't think giant football stadium for all of eternity singing hymns. I'm sure we'll do that some of the time. It'll be glorious. There will be some wonderful voices, and my voice will be improved in heaven, and that will be fabulous. I'm sure we'll have a massive stadium that we come to once every thousand years or whatever. But that's not the only thing that we do in the new creation. All of the, the creative things that people do here on this earth that can honor God are things that can be done in the new creation. The new creation is the Garden of Eden 2.0. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he didn't say, build a little stadium and sing songs. That's what I want you to do. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In other words, grow crops and have children and spread out and make something of this good world. And invent iPhones one day, because those are pretty cool. God put people on this earth to be creative and to make something of the good world that he has made. And that honors God when we live that way. It is good to be involved in industry and work and invention and innovation and art. All of those things done well can honor God because he has made us in his image. And so in the new creation, the thing that got messed up in the Garden of Eden and ended up as a failure, we get to do it again and we get to do it right this time. God puts us in the new creation. He says, okay, go. This is your playground. This is your workshop. Do something marvelous. Enjoy life. Enjoy fellowship with one another. Enjoy fellowship with me. Live life as it was always intended to be. And that's what we'll do forever and ever. That is your hope. When you groan, hope in that. A perfect world with God and with one another. Third practical way to enjoy the Spirit. In every word, enjoy the Spirit's voice. In every word, enjoy the Spirit's voice. Word here, speaking of the Bible, in every word enjoy the Spirit's voice. You all know that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1.21, holy men moved of God, spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You all know this, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. But, but further than that, the Holy Spirit speaks present tense through the Bible. He speaks today through the Bible. Not just the Holy Spirit spoke, past tense, but the Holy Spirit speaks present tense. 
You should say, where's the proof? I'll give you the proof. It's in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. The author to the Hebrews writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The author of Hebrews here is quoting from Psalm 95. That, that part, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, that's a quote from Psalm 95, which was written a thousand years before the letter of Hebrews was written. So the author of Hebrews either has Psalm 95 memorized or has it in front of him, and he writes it down, and then he's like, oh, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Present tense. Again, not what the Holy Spirit said a thousand years ago. That's definitely a past tense occasion. But he says, no, 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 this is what the Holy Spirit says. Because the word of God is not a, a static thing. It's not a dead thing. It is living and active. The Holy Spirit not only spoke a thousand years before, but he speaks as the author of Hebrews is writing. And 2,000 years later, today, 2,000 years removed from the letter of Hebrews, I can read this and say... As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I can just as legitimately say that today of this written 2,000 years ago as the author of Hebrews could quote scripture 1,000 years before him. In every word, you can enjoy the Holy Spirit's voice because in every word of scripture, the Holy Spirit not only spoke but also speaks. The last time you heard God speak to you was when I read that verse. If you want God to speak to you, then read your Bible. If you really want to hear him, then read it aloud. That was a joke. Cross that out next time. This means that you can read your Bible for more than mere information transfer. You certainly should read the Bible to learn about God. That is a wonderful reason to read the Bible. But it's more than that. Because the Holy Spirit speaks today through the Bible, you can read the Bible to enjoy a relationship with God. You can read to enjoy God through the Spirit's voice. You can read the Bible to be comforted. Remember how the Spirit comforts? He comforts by teaching and reminding you about the Father's love and the Son's grace so that you might be full of peace and joy. The Holy Spirit does that through the Scriptures too. And so that means you can get up every morning and you can open the Bible and know the Holy Spirit is intending to remind you of the love of the Father and the grace of the Son so that you might be full of peace and joy. That's exciting. That ought to excite us. And when it doesn't, it is our own sin and our own loss. The Holy Spirit will comfort you through the word. And so in every word, you can enjoy the Spirit's voice. One application of this is that you should love to read the Bible. 1 Peter, 1, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 2, commands us to long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it we may grow up into salvation. You should love to read the Bible as a way that you can enjoy a relationship with God. 
And another application is to love the preaching of the word. Love the preaching that you hear every Sunday in your local church. Love the preaching that you hear every Friday at youth group. Love to hear the word preached. Because the spirit is active there too. And sometimes, especially if you are just not able to feel it in your own personal devotions, if you are just stumbling and failing and sinning, and thus not able to receive that comfort in your own reading of the Bible in a given week, then often the Holy Spirit will be kind to speak to you through the preaching of his word. I had to do that the other week. It was in a dry spell, and so I pulled up a sermon by John Piper in the morning. I'm, like, I'm just going to listen to this first. And the Holy Spirit spoke. I need it sometimes. We all need it sometimes. And especially, it's great to have Piper sermons. It's great to have MacArthur sermons. It's also great to have sermons from your own local church pastors on Sundays and Fridays. So love the preaching of the word. Because when what is being spoken is faithful to the word of God, God is speaking through the preacher. In conclusion... Two closing encouragements for you. I want to end with two words of encouragement. Number one, direction is more important than position. Direction is more important than position. I hope in these messages you have been encouraged and overwhelmed in a good way with how much God loves you. How full of love the Father is, how full of grace the Son is, how much the Spirit longs to comfort you. I, you've been overwhelmed and that you are excited that you get to enjoy God every day. But I also realize that some of you could feel discouraged at how little progress you've made so far in your Christian life. You might hear uh, all of these wonderful messages about how fantastic of a relationship you can have with God, how close and how deep it can be, how much you can be enjoying God in every part of your daily life. And you might think, I don't do that. Maybe I do it a little bit, but, but not really. You might end up just feeling like a failure, and, and I don't want that. I don't think God wants it either. I think God wants you to be encouraged and built up by this and to be full of hope at how things can be. As you grow. And so I say that direction trumps position. Maybe your position on the, the spectrum of how much you enjoy God is just at, you know, like a 3 out of 100. Maybe you're, maybe you're there. Maybe you're at like a 25 or even a 50. But maybe you're at a 3, and, and that's okay. Even if your position is not that far along, you feel like you've still got a long way to go, your position is way back here, direction is more important. If you're headed in the right direction... You're learning how to enjoy God every day. You're starting to try to practice enjoying God every day. You're gradually growing in the right direction. You're going to get there. You're going to make wonderful strides. It would be good for each of you to, to think how much you might grow in the next 10 years. Uh, I've grown a ton in just the last year. I'm 25. The amount I've grown from 24 to 25 is remarkable in all sorts of ways, spiritual and other. You all are going to grow so much in the next year, in the next 10 years, Lord willing, in the next 50 years. And so as long as you're headed in the right direction and as long as you're willing to do course corrections along the way when you get off the track, you're going to go so far. God is going to do such work in your lives. 
So even if your position is not yet where you want it to be, be encouraged that you're headed in the right direction. It's the first word of encouragement. Second, there is more. There is more. John Owen pointed out to me in his book about this topic that all of our communion with God here on earth is initial and incomplete. As great as it can be, it's always just the beginning and it's never finished. Which means that in all of the times that we enjoy God here, it's a pointer to the future, to the new creation, where instead of being initial and incomplete, our communion with God will be perfect and complete. Where we will see him as he is, in his full glory, we will finally understand how much God loves us. And we will fully return that love to him. There will be no more sin, no more death. And you will get to enjoy God forever and ever. Christian, this is your great hope. Enjoy God every day and always know that there is more yet to come. Pray with me. Holy Spirit of God, you have been active at this camp in so many ways that I do not know about. Now, I trust that you have been active in the preaching of your word, and I trust that you have been active in the singing of true words about you, and I know that you have been at work in so many hearts. I've gotten to hear little snippets of that as I've sat in small groups or had conversations there's so much that you have done that I will never know about until that new creation when I get to talk to all of these students again. So I just praise you that you have been acting to comfort, reassure, and strengthen us believers by reminding us of how much the Father loves us and how gracious the Son is to us. Thank you for all that you do to shine the spotlight on Christ that we might adore him. And I do praise you for you are fully worthy of it. And I do ask you, O Lord, giver of life, and if there are any listening to my words now who have been at this retreat, who have heard so much about how a relationship with God can be, but they know that they don't have a relationship with God, would you please give them life? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, says Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so, Spirit, I just ask that you would, of your own goodness and kindness and mercy, give life to those who are dead. May this be the start of enjoying God for some who have never enjoyed Him before. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Okay, you win. <laughs> I, was, I was going to say, Rachel pointed out to me earlier that the first three books have all gone to guys. And, that's, and that wasn't intentional in my part. I just, I don't know if the guys were really fast in the first couple or what. And so she was like, you need to make sure. intentional for us. Maybe that was it. The first two times it was coincidence. And then we were like, you know, we should just.
then it was intentional. That was clever. So Rachel was like, you need to, to give it to a girl. And then I was going to say, I'm going to give it to a girl tonight. And then, boom, the hand was already up. So, you don't even know the book. Okay. This book is a, a great little book. It is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy by Tim Keller. And basically the idea is that humility is not thinking too much of yourself, and it's not thinking too little of yourself. It's not thinking too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself because you're so caught up in thinking about God and others. He, he wants to help us understand that humility doesn't mean you go around and be like, oh, I'm just a total failure. And somebody's like, hey, you did really good in archery tag. You're like, no, I'm a miserable failure. Like that, that's not humility. <laughs> that's not how it works. But the path to true Christian joy is understanding that God in Christ loves you and approves of you apart from anything that you do. And so you don't have to worry whether you're doing a good job or a bad job. You don't have to even think about it because you know God loves you. And so you can stop thinking about yourself and just go and love people. And it's a wonderful thing. This is a wonderful little book. You will enjoy it. And it is cheap, so Clifton will especially love to buy it for the rest of you. So you can come and get it. They were on sale one time for like two bucks a piece, and I bought like 40 of them. I was like, I need all of these. It's a great book. Okay. Discussion questions. This is the time for all of the leaders to take notes. I know that they take notes the rest of the day, especially now. All right. Just two discussion questions tonight. Number one, what is one hard thing in your life that will be different in the new creation? What's one hard thing in your life that will be different in the new creation. I want us to practice enjoying the Spirit's hope as we look forward. What's one hard thing in your life that will be different in the new creation? Second, dis question, second discussion question is broader and tries to be a, a recap and an encapsulation and an application of all four messages. It's this. How can you concretely implement these ways to enjoy God. How can you concretely implement these ways to enjoy God? I don't want you all to go home and just say, oh yeah, I went to a camp about how to enjoy God. Moving on, and then just you know, do life the way you did it before this camp. Uh, that, would, you know, that would be a failure on my part, and a failure on your part too. So in order to not fail, here's what I would love for you to do in your small groups. Go back through these, really these last three sessions where you've got all sorts of examples of ways to enjoy the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And think about how to concretely implement. And I, what I mean by that is like really practical actions. For instance, I was talking to somebody earlier who their small group leader challenged them to memorize Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? To memorize that as a way to remind themselves that the Father loves them. It's like, that's great. That is concrete implementation. And some of them have done it already and earned smoothies for doing it, which is pretty cool. I don't guarantee any smoothies, but you should still do it. I, I'm thinking about that level. Or like, when I'm groaning, then I'm going to 
call a friend and talk about what heaven's going to be like. Or when I am needing to, when I'm experiencing hardship and I want to enjoy the Father's formation, then I'm going to go and draw a picture of a flower because, you know, find a, find a flower in nature and draw a picture of it because Jesus says that the Father takes care of the flowers and drawing the picture will remind me that God takes care of me too and will help me to think about how God might be using this hardship. You see what I mean? Like really, really, really practical. Not like I'm going to read my Bible more. Like, well, yes, you should, but like, please be really concrete and practical and really personal. Don't be boring. Be creative. Think outside the box. There's going to be lots of right answers. There's going to be lots of creativity. I don't want to hear just boring, normal, safe, churchy answers because you'll go home and you won't do them because they're boring. <laughs> please come up with interesting, creative, fun ideas of ways that you can enjoy God every day. Little things you can do. Maybe you want to enjoy God's pleasures in food. And you're like, every time I eat a banana, I'm going to say, wow, God is so good. <laughs> Just do it. Okay? Go come up with creative, fun, practical ways to enjoy God every day. Yes. You're dismissed. Woo!